You have less frontal development than I should have expected. It's a dangerous habit to finger loaded firearms in the pocket of one's dressing gown. You evidently don't know me. On the contrary, I think it's fairly evident that I do. I can spare you five minutes, if you have anything to say. All that I have to say has already crossed your mind. And possibly my answer has already crossed yours. You stand fast. Absolutely. You frustrated me in the affair of the French gold. Ah. Oh. So it was you behind the red-headed Lee. A very ingenious and well-contrived idea. High praise from you. You crossed my path first on the 4th of January. By the middle of February, I was seriously inconvenienced by you. And at the end of March, I was absolutely hampered in my plans. And now with this last business in France, you have placed me in such a position by your continual persecution that I am in positive danger of losing my liberty. The situation is becoming an impossible one. Have you any suggestion to make? You must drop it, Mr. Holmes. You really must, you know. And what if I refuse? I'm quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. It is necessary that you should withdraw. You have worked things in such a fashion that we have only one resource left. It has been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you've grappled with this matter. But I say unaffectedly that it would be a grief to me to be forced to take an extreme measure <laughs> oh, you smile, sir. But it really would, I do assure you. Dangerous part of my trade. This is not danger. It is inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but of a mighty organization, the full extent of which even you, with all your cleverness, have been unable to realize. You must stand clear, Mr. Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I am neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Well, well. It seems a pity. But I've done what I could. This is a duel between you and me, Mr. Holmes. You hope to place me in the dock. You hope to beat me. If you are clever enough to bring destruction on me, rest assured, I shall do as much for you. You have... Paid me several compliments, Mr. Moriarty. Let me pay you one in return when I say that if I were assured of the former eventuality, I would, in the interests of the public, cheerfully accept the latter.
I can promise you the one. But not the other! The following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. <laughs> they must be destroyed on sight! Welcome back to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 179. I am your host, Lee. Less frontal lobe development than expected, Russell. Joined by my co-host, Daniel. This, I think, is a two-pipe problem, Harper. How are you doing, sir? If by a two-pipe problem you're implying that I'm constantly looking for more pipe in my life, you are correct, sir. (laughs) And uh, we are also privileged to be joined once again by our friend, Jack. Do you imagine that I can influence the powers of darkness, Graham? How are you doing, sir? Uh, I've been very busy influencing the powers of darkness, so I'm a bit tired. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Yet again, we are uh, continuing our little deep dive into uh, Sherlock Holmes adaptations. We're going to be looking at another adaptation, this time the Hammer one of The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1959. And then we're going to get into two uh, Jeremy Bretts. We're going to be looking at The Final Problem and The Empty House. So uh, we should have some fun with that. Before we get into that, we do have some comments. And uh, first off, from Philip A. Robod, in relation to our last episode, he says, That was a lot of fun. I've loved the 7% solution, despite its flaws, since I first saw it in the late 70s. Admittedly, I've never watched too many of the Jeremy Brett series, although it was a personal favorite of my father's. But I'll probably take another run at it, since it's available on YouTube. Thanks for the recommendation. And yeah, you're welcome. It's great. Yeah. Nice Uh, to put somebody on to the Jeremy Brett series. Jeff Williams comes in with his recommendation of the week. Uh, This time it's Road to Selena from 1970. He says, a strange European mystery that stars Robert Walker Jr. as a drifter whom cafe owner Rita Hayworth mistakes as her long-lost son. Oddly, everyone else does too. The Canary Island setting provides some unusual atmosphere to the proceedings, and Mimsy Farmer brings the quasi-incestuous sexiness and nudes it up quite nicely. Yeah, that sounds right (laughs) up our alley. You had me at Rita Hayworth in 1970, honestly. Yeah, and then you just, you know, you you sort of put frosting on the cake with the uh, incestuous sexiness and uh, nuding it up quite (laughs) nicely. Yeah. Drifter Detective. I mean, it, it does feel like these movies are just like handmade for us, you know. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think Jeff Williams has kind of got a handle on you guys now. <laughs> yeah, Cameron Sullivan comes in with uh, each time I watch uh, Good Talk with Anthony Jeselnik, who is a uh, stand-up comedian. I feel like you guys are the ones writing all these fucked-up interview questions. Not sure if that's a compliment or a criticism, but uh, <laughs> because some of his, some of his, he's uh, he's one of those guys who does like those beyond the pale jokes quite frequently i think he's funny but definitely not everyone's taste and then we have i think uh, think what 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 he's really telling us is that we should be professional comedy writers maybe yeah well i i'm sorry to have to break this to you guys but comedy's dead um oh is it okay yeah woke wokeness killed it 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Yeah, yeah. you can't the do Joker comedy movie, anymore. The Joker movie's out. You're not allowed to do comedy ever again. That's, that's right. It's over. Had a good run, but it's over. Mm. R.I.P. comedy. On our YouTube comment side, and they're both good comments this time. Oh, so, wow. uh, yeah. John Miles on our Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid episode said, Great movie. Great thoughts. Loved how you noted the similarities between this movie and that of Once Upon a Time in the West. Very well done. Thank you. We are very well uh, done. I like that. Yeah. It's like a little pat on the head for you. Yeah, you know, very well done. We got a cracker by the standards of YouTube comments. Like that's a that's a gushing uh, review uh, with huge amounts of like erudition and subtlety. Yeah, please don't mention YouTube and gushing in the same sentence. <laughs> yeah. And then from someone called Space Force JJ West fans. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. on our tr- Truck Turner episode said. Great channel, guys. Great reviews. We need a GTA type black exploitation video game as soon as possible. Later, Jive Turkeys. Well, I think you could kind of argue that. Well, okay, like, maybe not black exploitation. kind of like that concept. I guess maybe not black exploitation theme necessarily. Like, I guess he's saying like set it period, like set it seventies yeah. or something like that. But other than that. GTA is kind of that. <laughs> I I fully uh, expect the Rockstar Games to have exactly the level of uh, racial uh, awareness and sophistication to do that project without in any way leaning into unfortunate stereotypes or getting anyone upset. I have I have full confidence in that company. No, very good uh, social awareness from Rockstar, I, I think, yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll just briefly uh, mention that uh, I just did a recent appearance on the uh, Grindbin podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, and we talked about the Yesterday Machine from 1965, which is a uh, Z-grade sci-fi film about time-traveling Nazis who are trying to bring Hitler into uh, present day, 1965, and you know take over the world. Although their plan is to bring Hitler just before he dies in 1945 or whatever, mm-hmm. like drug-addled, crippled, insane Hitler, <laughs> which <laughs> seems, there seems to be a kink in that plan, you know? Um, I, it would be amusing, I have to say. Mm-hmm. I, I quite like the idea of a sort of uh, a, a drug-rattled Hitler who's been injected with his own urine by his insane doctor, you know, <laughs> with his hands trembling with Parkinson's and so on, being put on trial and hanged in 1965. I, I yeah, that <laughs> that appeals to me. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd like the idea that he suddenly, uh, you know, intersects with the uh, kind of early psychedelic culture in 1965, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like just dies of you know just too much amphetamine or something, like or you know, like, yeah, Hitler on acid. I can only imagine imagine you know <laughs> what, uh, what that what that man would would do um you know uh, yeah yeah it's it's a absolutely terrible movie but it's actually i'd actually recommend watching it just because it's so bad it, it almost makes the edward stuff look like competent filmmaking <laughs> like, uh, let's put it that way but uh, yeah we can move on now to what we've watched in the last little while i'll throw it over to jack first Okay, well, uh, it's October, so by law, I'm, I'm informed we, you have to watch uh, spooky movies mm-hmm. in October. So I'm I'm always law abiding. So I've been watching uh, some spooky movies. Uh, some of them rewatching. Some of them watching for the first time. I rewatched the U.S. remake of The Ring, which I remembered as being far better than I found it to be upon a rewatch. I rewatched. Uh, the U.S. remake of The Grudge, which is a fun movie, uh, I think that's that holds up fairly well. Although it's weird how it's weird how incredibly dated movies from the early aughts seem, you know, because like 
the world that we know is in place. Everybody's got a, a, a phone and uh, carry about their person and a, and a PC and et cetera, et cetera. But it's all, it all looks really big and clunky. So it's really, it's really weird. And of course there's still videotapes everywhere, but I like that film. And I watched, I've watched a few others. I watched, oh yeah, I watched another uh, US remake of a Japanese horror film called The Echo. Now that's lesser known than some of the uh, movies of the same type. I really like the Echo. It's 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 quite a trad ghost story in many respects, but it's very well done. There's some genuinely very unnerving and spooky bits. There's some supernatural violence in it that is very disturbing, and yet it feels it feels like it's there for a reason, even though it's very horrible. The the scene in question, anybody who's seen the film will know the scene I'm talking about towards the end. But it it feels justified because the film seems to have some stuff to say. You know, there's some social commentary in the film which isn't overplayed and and it's nicely integrated the themes are nicely integrated into the plot and it's got good acting and uh, it's just got a it's a really nice little movie that that few as far as i know few people are, are aware of it so if you like that sort of thing i'd, I'd really re- recommend you check out yeah, the Echo. I've, I've never heard of that one yeah no oh, i think it's quite a cheap thing you know but it's yeah it's well worth checking out i liked it much better than either the ring or the or the grudge um and i watched a more recent film called the ritual which has been getting some big plaudits from from some uh, sectors you know that's quite recent i think that was 2017 2018 yeah. uh, quite again quite a small budget film um an all british cast very small cast it's basically four british guys go for a walk in the woods that's it and you know they get i won't spoil it but they get gradually hunted down by a monster essentially and they wander into an encampment of people who worship said monster and it's based on a novel. I haven't read the novel, but it's it sounds very simple when you when you just describe it like that. I don't think it's really quite. It's one of those films where I came away from it thinking, yeah, there's something going on there, and I need to watch that again. So I'm going to leave it for a while and go back to it and see what I can make of it. But it's it's a film with a lot going on underneath the hood, if you know what I mean. So yeah, I, I would um, guardedly recommend that as well. The ritual. Yeah, I liked the ritual. I thought it was pretty good. So yeah, got a great monster. Mm, yeah, the, the monster's very original. Yeah, arguably you see too much of it, but you know I'm kind of on the fence with that because I kind of get annoyed with films that don't show you enough of the monster as well. So mm-hmm. it's possible. Again, I need to rewatch it, but it's possible that they got that balance just right, which is not easy to do. I just like what the reveal of what the monster is like supposed to be in yeah. mythology wise. I think is pretty neat. Yeah, and some very good acting in that movie as well. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Daniel, anything you watched lately? Uh, just one, uh, a rewatch, but a rewatch that I only saw once, like twenty years ago. So I figure it's a, you know, kind of worth, uh, you know, not even really considering a rewatch. I I rewatched Taxi Driver this week. Hmm. Um, hmm. I can't think why. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, it has been recommended as something we might be covering on our on our other uh, show there, Jack. Uh, and uh, really, I was just curious. I just kind of put it on and um, was like, let's watch twenty minutes of it and see. Um, got to the it's like wow this uh has definite uh relevance to the present day in mm. weird ways and um you know ultimately i'm i kind of come away with it's obviously a masterpiece it also feels very um it's it's difficult i think in the 2019 to uh appreciate it fresh because that kind of model of character study seems to be something that just like everybody picked up on after that film was made and so there are so many movies now that sort of hit that same kind of tone and hit that same sort of use a lot of the same general kind of imagery and that general, you know, kind of kind of photography. 
And so it feels definitely less fresh now than it did in the 70s, clearly. I find also that it's interesting that the film almost completely elides a, a sort of like overt political meaning. Um, it's very concerned with like its characters. It's very concerned with Travis Bickle and less concerned with sort of the world around him, um, despite the fact that it's almost explicitly about you know politics but it, but it but it seems to divest itself from that I, I definitely do want to kind of revisit it again and kind of see because i did just kind of watch it casually so you know maybe there's a a deeper kind of another reading in there as well but um yeah i mean obviously it's a masterpiece great performances if you haven't rewatched taxi driver in a while it's on netflix check it out is this one of those films that's actually cinema unlike those superhero movies <laughs> I was going to avoid that whole... Uh, <laughs> no, we don't have to talk about it. I'm just joking. But, uh, yeah. Um, I will I will say there is, uh, you know, and Jack will, will uh, sputter it with rage at this, but I will say I don't think that there is a Marvel movie as bad as The Wolf of Wall Street. But uh, that's a pretty <laughs> I I might agree with that, actually. <laughs> I might agree I thought, with that. I thought, you might give me, I thought you might give me shit for Iron Man, but other than that, you know. That's well, no, what I, I was mean, thinking as well. The thing about Iron Man is that it's so good. That's that's one of the big problems with it. It's it's a really, really, really well made movie. That's why it's so evil. Right. <laughs> Whereas Wolf of Wall Street is just garbage from beginning to end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very well made, but bad at the same time. So mm, yeah. I'm not even sure I'd say it was well made. Bits of it, okay. Like Margot Robbie's really good. You know. Right, right. You know, right. It's, it's it's got very talented people making shit. Yes. I haven't seen Suicide Squad. I didn't bother. But I'm quite pumped for Birds of Prey because Harley Quinn is one of my favorite comic characters. And I saw the trailer and I think Margot Robbie is just transcendent in that trailer as Harley. So I'm quite interested in that. The only reason to see Suicide Squad is for is for Margot Robbie. Yeah. I'm almost yeah. only the only reason to see any movie is to see Margot Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll mention one thing I watched uh, just today, actually. I watched In the Tall Grass, which just came out on Netflix, which is the uh, adaptation of a uh, Stephen King and Joe Hill co-novella uh, that they wrote, short story novella kind of thing. It's directed by the guy who directed Cube, actually, and there's a yeah. lot of a lot of similarities to it. I can see why they picked him as this uh, for the director for this. The story itself, like the original source material, is basically an homage to uh, Elgernon Blackwood's The Willows and Joseph wow. Payne Brennan's uh, Canavan's Backyard, that kind of idea. The idea of normal-seeming places in nature that if you cross the boundary into, you might never never get out again because there's something fundamentally wrong about those places and so this one is in the tall grass people walking into a field and getting lost in the field and the field moving people around and always keeping them away from the edges of the field to get out it's very well done in the sense that it sort of maintains that idea of sort of just the weird tale the the innate creepiness not explaining things to you necessarily so you're always kind of thinking what the hell is going on it's got very good tension very good acting it's got some of those nasty gory bits that stephen king likes to put in his own work so i think straight up it's probably one of the best adaptations of stephen king and joe hill's work i've seen so far on screen that being said it's about 15 to 20 minutes too long it, it just kind of repeats some beats over and over again that it doesn't need to but other than that pretty high recommendation for me i, I really liked it it's, it's worth checking out it's definitely creepy and by the time it gets to the end it kind of maybe explains a little too much it definitely changes the ending from the ending of the actual uh, story but all in all pretty effectively done so mm. i liked it 
That sounds pretty appetizing because I like Cube and The Willows by Blackwood is one of my favorite stories of all time. So, yeah, I'll check that out. Right on. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to play some music, some podcast promos, and we're going to come back and talk about The Hound of the Baskervilles. Then you come to the right place. My name is Gary and I'm your guide to Cinema Beef Podcast. Every episode we not only deliver film reviews, we also dismantle some of your favorite and most hated films. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Hey, 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 you shut your face! If we want to hear you talk, I will shove my arm up your ass and work your mouth like a puppet! Alright, calm down, calm down. Every show I hope to have a new co-host, podcasters, listeners alike. That's right, I'm talking to you people. I take all comers. That's not very nice. The only rules, well, let's ask the best cooler in the business. All you have to do is follow three simple rules. One, never underestimate your opponent. Expect the unexpected. Two, take it outside. Never start anything inside the bar unless it's absolutely necessary. Three, be nice. So join the insanity and please vent your frustrations. I'm available on TalkShoe, iTunes, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Remember, here at the Sun Beef Podcast, if you got beef, I've got the grinder. Hello, and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, 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 and he said, bark, 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 and she said, bark, 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 that's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner, the other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> anyway. Which, which one is crying? <laughs> the boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, This is the Doomed Show is available on Podomatic. Dot com and doomedmoviethon.com Hello, hello, this is the Doomed Show, Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. It's the Doomed Show. Hello, hello, this is the Doomed Show, slashes, G.I. Low and Horror.
Okay, The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1959. Exalted, else you will surely meet the hound of hell, the hound of the Baskervilles. Which way? For heaven's sake, which way? The greatest story ever written by one of the world's greatest storytellers, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's classic masterpiece of mystery, suspense, and horror, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Some revolting sacrificial rite has been performed depths a human being can sink to. What human being could have done this? That is precisely what I intend to find out. But how can you be so certain that somebody took one of the bishop's spiders and deliberately placed it in Sir Henry's room? That it wasn't in the luggage he brought from South Africa? Elementary, my dear Watson. There are no tarantulas in South Africa. What do you want me to do? Identify anything I may find. Strange things are to be found on the moor. Like this, for instance. Swine. You thought it was going to be easy, didn't you? Didn't you? You won't be the first of your family who thought that. And you won't be the first to die because of it. Directed by the excellent Terence Fisher. Written by Arthur Conan Doyle and Peter Bryan. Starring Peter Cushing as Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Andre Morel as Dr. Watson. Christopher Lee as Sir Henry Baskerville. And by the way, when we were talking about Christopher Lee and his hairpiece in, in one of our previous episodes. <laughs> now I just can't help but see like the seams of the uh, <laughs> the hairpiece in this movie. Especially the, the, the clear quality. <laughs> I was I was just staring all the time. Now I can't stop staring at his hair. Marla Landy is Cecile Stapleton. David Oxley is uh, Sir Hugo Baskerville. Francis D. Wolfe as Doctor Richard Mortimer. Miles Melson as Bishop Franklin. Ewan Solon as Stapleton. John Lemassure as uh, Barrymore, and Helen Gross as Mrs. Barrymore. And uh, synopsis here from Jeremy Lunt on IMDb. Returning to his family's manor house on the lonely moors after his father dies under mysterious circumstances. Sir Henry Baskerville is confronted with the mystery of the supernatural hound that supposedly takes revenge upon the Baskerville family. The famous detective Sherlock Holmes and his assistant Dr. Watson are brought in to investigate. And yeah, I mean, we've already done one version of this, so uh, I think, you know, everyone knows this story. Um, yeah, I was going to say a synopsis for one of the most famous stories. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, we'll th- uh, throw over uh, to you, Jack. What are your sort of uh, general thoughts on this one? Okay, there's only so much I can possibly not like this because it's a Hammer movie about Sherlock Holmes that's got Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in it, right? Mm-hmm. So just that by its very nature, it's not something I can possibly dislike very much. Okay, that to one side. I think this is a bit 
dodgy, to be honest. I, I don't think this is a particularly good film. Um, certainly not by the standards of early Hammer, and certainly not among adaptations of this story, of which there are many, as we know. I mean, uh, I, I agreed with you guys when you said that the Basil Rathbone adaptation of Hand of the Baskervilles was a bit bland, a bit stagey. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I still I prefer that one to this, I have to say, because this kind of goes very much the other way and i think it tips over into self-parody it's i i I kind of appreciate what it's trying to do it's in in some ways it's trying to do it quite straight isn't it because you Mm -hmm. don't get any humorous disguises or anything like you have um holmes turn up in the basil rathbone one and he's pretending to be the old hobo and you get the blissful scene where he claims to be sherlock holmes uh watson claims to be sherlock holmes etc you don't get anything quite that comedic like the most in this one the most comedic one thing in this film is miles mallison as the uh oh i love uh, him yeah he's great (laughs) and he's like the funniest thing in it andre morell's great watson and peter cushing mm, i I, peter cushing's absolutely one of my favorite actors of all time i'm i can't say i'm particularly sold on this version of holmes he feels a bit flat and one-dimensional to me but they do play it very straight Everybody plays it very straight, apart from Miles Mallison, who's there to be funny. So, and and at the same time, as it's kind of it's the it's the 1959 version of a dark and gritty reboot, you know. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's going it's being a Hammer film as well. So they can't just do the Conan Doyle story; they have to add poisonous tarantulas and a, a sacrificial stone and a curved knife and blood everywhere and stuff yeah. like this. And none, I'm afraid none of these additions to the plot make any sense whatsoever. I don't understand why presumably the Stapletons are sacrificing Selden the convict on the stone with a sacrificial knife after he's... I I, I don't get it. I I don't know why they're leaving tarantulas in Sir Henry's boot or anything. You know, nobody's thought this through beyond let's let's put some blood in, let's put some more sensation in, and let's make the Stapletons into these weird sort of webbed fingers, uh, (laughs) webbed-fingered, inbred, weird offshoot of the basketball family who aren't apparently in it for money, they're in it for some sort of weird revenge, and we'll make the character in the book is called Beryl. Um, The character in this is transformed into Stapleton's daughter, and she's called Cecile, and we'll make her into this sort of hot, surly, moody spanish girl you know and stuff yeah, like this, this uh... and um yeah it's it's it just i i understand what they're doing but i think it just goes a little bit too far so that it tips over there's there's kind of a mismatch between the source material and and hammer somehow you know and the hammer style and it just kind of makes this an awkward piece of work although as i say it's a Hammer film about Sherlock Holmes with, with Cushing and Lee, so there's only there's a, I can only dislike it so much. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, I agree with everything that uh, Jack said, except I actually really enjoyed this. I loved how like completely batshit this is mm-hmm. from beginning to end. I love that it starts in media res with the uh, the backstory, like that feels very Hammer to me, you know. Yeah. Um, I love the uh, I love the kind of I wish there was more gore in it. Like I wish they'd pushed even harder on the horror elements and just sort of removed, like just sort of used the. I wish they had strayed even further from the original story. Basically, I almost yeah, wish absolutely. They had if they just, go ahead if they pushed on and made it more gory and bonkers, then it would work. It's this sort of pushing it 
too far, but only just too far. That makes it feel awkward to me, I think. Yeah, no, no, I get it. There, There's like this kind of middle section where I'm kind of like checking my watch just a little bit, where it's just sort of where we're just kind of going through the motions of the Sherlock Holmes doing the plot. I wish they had like just sort of almost had Sherlock and Watson just sort of off to the side while this whole other like occult story is happening. Um, I actually like, dearly loved Marla Landy because like she's a spunky curvaceous brunette in a movie in mm-hmm. 1959 and uh i just you know that's me and you know how jack feels about christopher lee and peter cushing that's how i feel about that kind of actress like i'm just never gonna I, I not like i don't her. think it's quite the um, same <laughs> 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 no but i i i am uh you know i was i was kind of deeply in love with the idea oh we're gonna put a you know a basically a femme fatale in here and uh, she's going to be the the big bad. It was it was like it just I don't know. It's completely nuts, and I kind of loved it, but also was bored during big chunks of it. So you know, that's just sort of I don't know. It was fun. That's all. I, it was definitely worth ninety minutes of my time, and I would highly recommend it to people listening to this. I think it. I think it is. It is uh, fun enough to be worth your to be worth the effort. Yeah, if you ask me on any given day, I'd say this is probably my favorite adaptation of the story, even though it's so not close in a lot of ways and so close in others. It's no surprise that Hammer's focusing on the horror elements here. This is 1959, just a year before. They had Dracula. They had Frankenstein. Like, they started doing horror stuff around 55-ish, I'd say. Like, they had the the, the Quatermass stuff, and um, then they moved on to Frankenstein and Dracula and the mummy. So they were doing all that stuff and it was big, it was big hits for them. So it's like, let's try to get another uh, thing going here. Like they originally intended to make this a series very much like the Dracula and the Frankenstein films became, but of course that never happened. <sighs> yeah, it goes real bad shit. It really does. But I, I do love just the, the opening where it just gets into this sort of like Gothic horror backstory thing, which first is, I you thought know, I had downloaded the wrong movie. Yeah. Like, you know, like, <laughs> I had this moment of like, wait a minute, aren't we, this is a Sherlock Holmes movie. This starts out in 221 Baker street. We're supposed to be just, you know, we're supposed to have like 10 minutes of just banter between these two characters, right? No, no, we don't do that at all. Sorry. No, they just cut all that out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, you're basically seeing what Holmes originally reads or whatever, or or gets Mortimer to read when when he comes to him with the problem, right? And, oh, here's the legend of the Baskervilles, you know, and this is why you should be interested in the case and all that shit. And, yeah, it's the first adaptation of the story in color, and they make the most of it. You know, you, you've got like the, all the sort of gel lighting and stuff and like the ruins and, and you got, you got this, the nice sets and then you've got the unfortunate, <laughs> some of the worst day for night shots I've ever seen in a movie. Some really bad. Like they didn't even try to necessarily make it look like nighttime. <laughs> it's that oh, yeah. bad. Yeah. But I just, I really enjoy the performances. I, I love the knowledge that Cushing was like designing the set himself and brought his own clothes for wardrobe. And I do lo- really love his performance personally. I, I think he's really good as Holmes. I don't find him flat at all. I like that Morel is, he's a smart Watson. He's, you know, decidedly tried to move away from the Rathbone interpretations of, of this. And yeah, the middle part drags because that's where they start focusing on the original source material. Like they try, they, hey, there's there's a mystery here and there's drama and and then they take Christopher Lee and make him a love interest, which is just unique upon itself to see him as sort of a <laughs> sympathetic role, right? And that's interesting, but it does drag even even though it's only like fifteen to twenty minutes without Holmes 
because they, they bring Holmes in and and they make uh, Cushing do a lot more stuff than Holmes actually does in the story, just to make sure. Yeah, this is Sherlock Holmes. This is his story. You know, yeah. let's make no mistake here. The Hound itself is disappointing. Yeah. Although I do I do like the mask they use. It, it does look cool, but. Uh, there, is, there is a significantly long time we spend like pouring over the body of a dead dog in this. Like, mm-hmm. that, it was definitely kind of one of those, uh, you know, by by 2019 sensibilities that was really <laughs> intense for me. You know, not that you know, not that it looks particularly real, but you know, we just don't do that in cinema. You know, typically, yeah, yeah. We uh, we also spend a, a great deal of time watching its ass waggle around and its bollocks swinging in the air as well. <laughs> Which is how did that not get like a censorship strike? You know, like I don't know. Like I, I guess you know they're just, they're more interested in censoring the blood than they are the uh, the butt and uh, ball sack of a dog. But uh, apparently, I read somewhere. Now I, I can't verify this. Only sort of like read a couple sources of this. But apparently, there were shots that got scrapped where they had children or or at least prepubescent kids dressed up like Holmes and Watson fighting with the dog. Oh, wow. To try to make the dog look so much bigger and they just scrapped <laughs> it because it looked so bad. And and I, I, I hope to hell that that's real and that that footage shows up someday because oh, yeah. that, that feels, yeah. that feels real Ed Wood level. <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> that That is, if that shows up, that is a definite uh, Blu-ray purchase for those, for those extras. I, I yeah. want to see that. I, I, I imagine, you know, that the famous scene in alien, when the astronauts climb up through the hole into the cockpit, the, the, the astronauts there are actually children in little mm-hmm. spacesuits to make yeah. the set look bigger. Yeah. I think actually my favorite thing in this whole film, though, is actually uh, Miles Mailson as the bishop. I, I just love that he's just, just drunk and lush. He's inviting himself into people's places to get sherry, you know, just just get a drink, you know, and, and talk bullshit to people. And he goes on and on. Um, I love how he is like, oh, your name's Watson. You're not related to that notorious white slaver, are you? <laughs> <laughs> big mood right <laughs> yeah we get more instances of uh sherlock holmes being a dick in this film which is always good uh, I, I love how uh cushing is like manipulating people by being dicks to them just to you know get what he wants how he walks in the baskerville hall for the first time he doesn't even introduce himself he just starts ordering barrymore around without this <laughs> is like yes uh go get our fucking rope and ladder right now i was like Yes, sir. Who the fuck are you again? Like, <laughs> Barrymore can't ask that question, so it's just like it, it just fe- it feels a little out of character. But at the same time, it's like yeah, Sherlock Holmes already suspects that there's something up with the Barrymores, so he wants to you know kind of get a in on their. Uh, well, and what the way thinking. you do like a real investigation a lot of times is to you know like poke and prod and like draw people out to you know make a make an admission they wouldn't make otherwise or to you know respond some way i mean it it makes sense i'd love to see like more of that in sherlock holmes where he's just a dick to the people who actually deserve dickish treatment rather than like his best friend like that's you know yeah yeah Yeah. rather than sitting uh on the back of the wagon without announcing himself while people dig through a collapsed mine looking for him (laughs) (laughs) I, i do like that element though of in the original story it's like they're keeping the dog in a in like a hole in the ground or whatever, but it, they, they turn it into a whole mine or whatever. And, and then the villains try to trap Holmes in there and all that, that good moment where he looks back and he sees, uh, he sees them with the uh, mine cart just staring at him. And he's like, Oh shit, I know. And they know. And 
yeah, I'm just gonna try to get out of here. And then they let the cart go and knock the whole fucking mine down on top of them. Yeah, it does give Holmes, as you as you were saying before, they big up Holmes's part a bit because Holmes is, is uh, you know, a lot of people remark is barely in the book, The Hound of the Baskervilles. It's mm-hmm. it's a weird Hound of the Baskervilles is a weird product of this uh, this era when Condoyle's really ambivalent about the character. It, it's actually written between. Um, the final problem uh, yeah. when Holmes is killed off and the empty house when he brings him back. And it's written kind of because uh, Conan Doyle just gets really interested in this legend. He he encounters a real legend about, you know, a, a, a demon dog or a demon hound in, uh, Dar- I think it is actually on Dartmoor. Because uh, there's, there's a lot of those throughout the British Isles. Yeah, so I was about to say, like, and, the, yeah. the, black, the black dog or the hellhound or whatever. Like, there, there's a lot of those variations of those legends all through, like, just Britain and Scotland and probably yeah. even Ireland, right? It's a big thing. But yeah. uh, I think one of his friends put him onto the, the this legend and he just wanted to write about it. And so he writes this as a, uh, as a home story from, you know, like, like Watson's archives. This is uh, supposedly after Holmes is dead and Watson's found this case in the archives. That's how it's... So uh, Holmes is, as I say, Conan Doyle's really ambivalent at this point. So Holmes is, is really not in the book for a great stretch. It's Watson who's the protagonist for a great stretch. So obviously when they made, when they wrote the script for this, they thought we've got to give Holmes more to do. Yeah. So they give this, and it's, it's interesting that they give Peter Cushing some very physical stuff to do you know which is which is a sound decision cuz peter cushing's a brilliant physical actor that's yeah that's what i'm thinking you know yeah uh like you know he gets to he gets to knock a fake spider off to christopher lee's sh- shoulder uh, when was when was doctor no released what year was that that's the 61 61 right? okay so so we're is it that early really so we're we're preceding yeah. uh james oh, bond sorry, with the spider sorry, 62. 62 62 yeah but still we're uh, we're, we're preceding uh, James Bond and Doctor No with the spider mm. on him and stuff like this yeah, from the novel, from the, the area. Novels in 1958, though, so they might have taken it from the novel. Uh, true, true. There is lots of weird stuff about uh, animals in the novel. There's lots of mm-hmm. you know um, weird uh, poisonous centipedes and shit and uh, poisonous spiders in the book. So yeah, but it is it's interesting to watch these films from this immediately sort of pre-Bond era, and you see where the ingredients that go into bond the bond movies where they come from they get synthesized you know into the into the the first few bond movies and then become like we we think of a lot of them now as like tropes of bond uh, that are actually carried over from this kind of popular cinema from the late 50s early 60s almost makes you think maybe christopher lee had some sort of input input on the script with with that like oh you know let's go with the spider thing because you know he's got the connection to ian fleming and and all that yeah it could yeah it could be i hadn't thought of that yeah yeah well um, anytime you've got like giant spiders killing people there's a sort of you know like colonialist reading of you know kind of kind of this oh yeah foreign yeah. influence you know foreign menace yeah this is these are African spiders, if you know what I mean. The particularly well, dangerous kind of spider. Well, I mean, you know. Yeah, and then and he's kill like, us all. But no, he's like, uh, there are no tarantulas in South Africa, Watson. It's elementary, you know. Um, <laughs> but the tarantulas in England, though, apparently, because yeah. <laughs> this film's crawling with them. Well, yeah, but uh, I mean, and then, and then you get. You get the uh, femme fatale in this, who's the uh, fiery Spaniard. So again, you got a bit of the foreign menace kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Although you can also sort of you can put a bit of a reading of you know being oppressed by the 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 wasp uh, Brit, you know. 
Although uh, one of the things I like about that character is how proactive she is. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the the equivalent character in the book is very much just a victim. She's um, ostensibly Stapleton's unmarried sister, and then it turns out uh, that she's actually his secret wife, you know, and he, he's yeah. a, an abusive husband and stuff. Whereas in this, um, she's uh, she's whatever else you can say about it, she's much more proactive than that character. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's this sense like it's one of those things I kind of run into. One of the things I love about noir is that, you know, you, okay, you've got the uh, femme fatale with all the sort of like problematic elements of like, oh, you know what, women are like. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, the, the, the joy of it is that suddenly they actually get to like do things in the plot and suddenly they get like a, a real motivation and they get a real like kind of perspective and a real, you know, and you actually get to see like women give great performances. They just have to be like villains. And so there's this, I don't know, complicated move there. Like, I, I, I don't know. I always love this kind of character in this kind of movie. It's just like, yeah, no, it's great. Like uh, it just makes me happy on many, many levels as Jack uh, implied. Oh yeah, yeah. And this being Hammer, of course, they definitely up the cleavage level. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. She's she's practically busting out of there. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the uh, the 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 girl in the uh, prologue sequence as well. And mm -hmm. uh, they really they they're pretty frank about what's you know being planned there by all these guys. You know, it's it's pretty. You know, they couldn't really be much more open about the fact that they're basically planning to gang rape her. Oh yeah. Um, which is you, you, know, you feel you should feel proud that we're gonna rape your daughter. You. Yeah. <laughs> Like wow! So we do have a bit of good old-fashioned British class war consciousness going on mm -hmm. at that, that point, anyway. Which is yeah. something you do get in Hammer. You do, you know, you, Hammer is not kind to rich people. No. <laughs> which is one of the things I love about it. Well, I mean, you you get so much gothic horror running through Hammer, and all that almost always uh, revolves around rich people being shits and then having a curse put on their family because of it, you know? So mm. any other final thoughts on this one? Uh, I've got one trivia piece uh, for this sucker pretty much. Um, just that the Baskerville hall set is basically a redress of castle Dracula from, oh, yeah. uh, from 58. So, I mean, fairly obvious there. And also uh, the uh, Bernard score, which is excellent actually does reuse a bit of the score from, uh, Dracula. I think um, it, it sounds it sounds like a lot actually if the original Dracula mm -hmm. score gets used in this, but um, that's fine. It's great. It's great music. So, but at the same time, it's, it's James Bernard. A lot of his scores sounded fairly the same in in, in certain ways. You know, he did that's that true. famous thing where it's like, you know, what's the title of the film? Dracula. Dracula. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> bom, bom, bom. Yeah. I'm just thinking about Danny Elfman and Tim Burton. <laughs> you know, <laughs> moving on, moving on. I've told yeah. you about my Dracula song, haven't I? That I that I composed when I was a kid to the tune of the the Hammer movie. Dracula, I'm scared of Dracula. Mm -hmm. Had loads of verses. He'll suck blood out of you. <laughs> Dracula I mean, that, from Transylvania. I mean that that's definitely not far removed from what james bernard was actually writing when he was writing that it's like yeah. you know that's what he had in mind so and um, then they they hired him didn't didn't they to do the music for the dvd the bfi dvd release of nosferatu and he does mm -hmm. a score for that and it's got the uh nosferatu yeah uh, i mean i mean if if you want to hear all about that you should hear our uh wonderful nosferatu episode that we're all on as well go back in the right. archives and look for it yeah um, one of the best episodes of this fucking podcast. I'd say so, yeah. I'd say so. So we're going to take a quick break, play a little bit of music, and we're going to come back with some Jeremy Brett. You ungodly warlock. 
We're going to look at uh, two Jeremy Brett adaptations here, and we're going to look at The Final Problem and The Empty House. Final Problem from 85, directed by Alan Grint. John Hawksworth and Arthur Conan Doyle did the writing for this, and The Empty House. Of course, you got Brett as Sherlock Holmes, David Burke as Dr. Watson, Eric Porter as Professor Moriarty, uh, Rosalie Williams as Miss Hudson, Oliver Pierre as Director of the Louvre, Claude de la Chache as Minister of the Interior, Michael Goldie as the artist, Robert Henderson as American Millionaire, and Paul Sir as young art expert. And then we have with The Empty House, Howard Baker as the director. And uh, we have Patrick Allen as Colonel Sebastian Moran. James Bree as the uh, coroner. Colin Jevons as Inspector Lestrade. Richard Bibb as Sir John Hardy. Uh, Robert Addy as Mr. Murray. Naomi uh, Buke as the Countess of uh, Maynooth, Paul LaCroix as the Honorable Ronald Adair. The uh, synopsis for both of these. After four months, Sherlock Holmes returns to Baker Street following several attempts to his life. Uh, Holmes had been away on an appointment assignment for the French government, recovering the Mona Lisa that had been stolen from the Louvre. Uh, He was successful in his task and appropriately uh, rewarded by the French, but he 
raise the ire of the crime's perpetrator, Professor Moriarty. On the morning of his return, the professor visited Holmes in his flat and warned him to cease or he would have no choice but to take extreme measures. With several attempts on his life having already taken place, Holmes and Watson head for Switzerland. Moriarty is a relentless pursuer, however, and he and Holmes have a fateful encounter at the Reichenbach Falls. That's from Gary KMCD. The other uh, synopsis from Gabe Taverney. After Dr. Watson testifies at the inquest of the Honorable Ronald Adair, Shot to death after returning home from his gambling club, he is followed back to his office by an eccentric bookseller who reveals himself to be Holmes in disguise. After the initial shock wears off, Holmes explains that he did not die in the fall that killed Professor Moriarty in their famous encounter at Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland three years earlier. Holmes has remained out of England to avoid Colonel Sebastian Moran, a Moriarty associate who witnessed Holmes' escape death and has vowed to kill Holmes in revenge. Uh, Holmes will try to foil Moran and solve the Adair murder. And yeah, there we go. And we'll uh, immediately go over to you, Jack. What, what's your uh, thought on these two? Well, as, as I say, I, I I love the Jeremy Brett TV series. It's my favorite version of Holmes on the screen. These are not among my absolute favorites, I have to say. I think the problem is really kind of with the original source material. It's it's a bit of a weird thing to say, maybe, because it's so it's so classic, you know, the uh, the Holmes versus Moriarty, his arch enemy on the Reichenbach Falls and everything. But there is just something about the whole idea of Moriarty and and how it pans out, and then certainly the empty house, particularly because the empty house feels so sort of cobbled together out of necessity, you know. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, these are not these are not stories that flow terribly well and they do a really good job i think turning them into television but there is just there's just kind of an underlying problem with the with the plausibility of it there's all sorts of ideas about this which is that you know is is watson so to speak telling us the truth this is this is stuff that is much debated <laughs> among yeah. holmesians you know maybe we'll get into that uh, this th- these kind of fit into the same gap that the 7% solution does obviously and what the 7% solution the idea that it's based on is that this is the truth about what happened when Holmes supposedly went up against Professor Moriarty, his arch enemy, and then faked his own death and disappeared for a few years and then came back again. That's what happens in the stories. The premise of 7% Solution is Watson essentially lied to the public, and this is what really happened. And what you get in these TV episodes is a pretty straight adaptation of Watson's account as it yep. were, in the stories. Um, although a, a lot of the first one, the final problem, is completely original because the whole thing about the trip to France for the French government and the Mona Lisa being stolen and all that, that's all just made up for the TV series. Yeah. And it's 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 been suggested that it's actually lifted from the from the plot of a Doctor Who story from 1979. <laughs> yeah, no, of Death. it's completely... Taken from the city of death, yeah, no. Yeah, uh, which yeah. is about uh, an, an alien time traveler who steals the Mona Lisa and then gets Leonardo da Vinci to paint six copies or whatever because he wants to sell them all. Um, which is this only is... slightly less implausible than, uh, yeah. you know, the anyway please continue jack yeah no no it's it's great i love it uh they appear to have lifted their original um sherlock holmes story that they that they filled the gaps in uh from uh a a tom baker doctor (laughs) which is terrific um which really just to say what if tom baker played sherlock holmes and there wasn't a giant rat in that episode yeah (laughs) well you know i don't know if you know tom baker did play sherlock holmes on the bbc oh i didn't uh, sorry like i Here's where uh, my own ignorance. I'm ho- I'm hoist on my own petard. 
There we go. That's all right. Don't don't self-flagellate, Daniel. It's well, not when we're doing this anyway. Later yeah, on. Um, yeah, yeah. There is a uh, Hound of the Baskervilles actually. BBC Hound of the Baskervilles with hmm. Tom Baker as uh, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> well, clearly we're going to have to do that now. <laughs> you know? We're gonna have to do Hound of the Baskervilles for the third time Again. in this series. Yeah. Yeah. This will just become the Hound of the Baskervilles <laughs> podcast. Watching the Hound <laughs> of the Baskervilles with Lee and Daniel. Um, no, uh, uh, yeah. So there's just, I just there's kind of a problem with the original source material. I think, especially with the empty house, which is a very, which feels very functional. The mystery feels very perfunctory, and uh, the real purpose of the story is to just bring Holmes back with this story that even. Even on the page, it leaves you feeling unsatisfied. So lots of people speculate about what, so to speak, really happened. What is Watson? What is the truth that Watson isn't telling us? And um, Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick did a a, a stage play uh, in the West End round about the time they were. Well, it was during the time they were making these TV shows. I went to see it. It was um, called The Secret of Sherlock Holmes. It was written by Jeremy Paul, who was one of the TV series writers. And the premise of the it was it was largely composed of like dialogue from the original stories until you get to the second act and the premise of that is that there's no such person as moriarty holmes makes him up and in cahoots with mycroft he he convinces watson that there's this person moriarty and he fakes his own death so that he can disappear for a few years and the the, the play gets into kind of the, the the psychology of sherlock holmes the fact that he's he's got these demons inside him and it implies you know that moriarty is his projection of his inner demons onto this fictional personality that he's created and and stuff like that i i saw it when i was a kid i was actually very lucky to be able to go backstage because various connections between people I knew, etc. I was actually very lucky to be able to go backstage and meet Jeremy Breath and Edward Hardwick. I was I was only about eleven. But they uh looked I mean, even at that age, I could sense Brett's frailness. But he was a lovely man. He was just a lovely guy. And Ed, and Edward Hardwick as well. They they were just lovely guys. Yeah, but that's that's a that's by the by. The point is that there's lots of scope for reading these stories between the lines. And what the television series does is apart from the stuff it makes up about the Mona Lisa to fill in some fill in some time, it just presents them very close to the original stories. Uh, and I think in this one instance, this is kind of a problem because I, these stories are just there's something about them that they don't quite fit together. Like it's weird in the final problem, the stuff that Watson doesn't see. He doesn't see Holmes's final battle on the on the falls watson is lured away and then he comes back and he finds holmes gone and he finds a note from holmes and lots of people have speculated that conan doyle wrote it that way because he wanted the the leeway to be able to bring holmes back if he needed to and yet of course we were just talking about the hand of the baskervilles conan doyle could always just have written more stories and said that they happened before holmes died so yeah. there is there is a lot of discussion about this and there's a bit of a mystery to it about why conan doyle chose to write it that way these are very odd texts and there's just something about their very literal one-to-one faithful adaptation to the screen that just doesn't quite seem to work for me i don't know as my, although again this is my favorite version of holmes and i love jeremy bray etc so there's only so there's only so much i can dislike it if you know what i mean yeah Daniel, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Moriarty is a really dumb idea. It's yeah. just it's just a really dumb idea. Yeah. Like the whole point of Sherlock Holmes is we've got this guy who's just clever and who can like detect things and who can and so obviously if you're kind of looking to 
give him challenges. The easy, like sort of the simple, like I'm 13 years old and just discovered masturbation and Sherlock Holmes <laughs> is to like give him like what if there's a guy who's just as smart as him but like on the other side, right? And yeah. uh, you know, the sort of sort of pair him with someone else who's really bright. Like it, it, it feels like it works in the sense of like uh, exploring the story of you need a way to just kind of you know put Sherlock Holmes in his like like to give him a good send off. Okay, this is the last one. We're gonna kill off Sherlock Holmes. We're gonna make him go away, and we're gonna justify it by saying he met somebody just as smart as he was, and so it's not like some like little dipshit, you know, like <laughs> who kills Sherlock Holmes. I get that. You know, it's this whole thing with like death of Superman. What do you have to do? You have to give Superman somebody who's just as strong as Superman and they, they like die together fighting each other. Okay, great. But it doesn't work if you ever intend to bring him back. And it doesn't work as like, I mean, imagine if there was like a really uh, terrible TV series that just brought him <laughs> back over and over and over again and made this the center of the series nobody would do that it's just a really dumb idea for many professional like writer idea you know so moriarty's just kind of a dumb idea it's just it's just it's just kind of it's 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 a placeholder right and so the very idea of sort of criticizing this so you know the final problem is ultimately we solve a crime and then it turns out that this like big scary guy is uh the one responsible for it and then we like run from this guy because ultimately you know and He's going to try to kill us if we don't because he's he's really clever. This, by the way, is the uh, center of <laughs> Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. A third of that movie is essentially the same plot where, okay, we're just going to kind of run from this one, like, really dangerous killer. You know, it's essentially that. Um, it works in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because uh, it's a Western and we get to look at, like, gorgeous Western scenery for, you know, 25 minutes <laughs> i mean here it's fine i guess like it it, it does its thing but it is just, it, it, we are just kind of like moving around in a plot it, it is mm. just kind of we're just kind of waiting for the end right and then the empty house like moriarty's gone but it's, there's one more of moriarty's goons that we still have to take care of right and so it's still just kind of about cleaning up the mess which holmes is not like bothered with for three years <laughs> And uh, he's just kind of what I'm just watching the newspaper and then there's going to be a really clever crime and I'm going to know it when I see it. And then I'll come back instead of, you know, kind of being a mensch and doing the thing and coming back and like finding the guy, which you're sure like fucking Holmes, right? Like hmm. that's a clearly a better story, but I guess Doyle wanted to make sure there wasn't like a big gap in the timing or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a detailed Holmesian. And then he kind of does the like locked room mystery, which ultimately is solved by like there's an air gun. I mean, there's just like fundamental kind of deep structural problems yeah. involved with all of this. Like it just it makes sense sort of inside the thing of like, OK, I understand you just you wanted to kill him and then you wanted to bring him back. And he just sort of built a thing around that. But ultimately, it's all just mechanics. It's all just people running around and doing bullshit for bullshit reasons. Mm. And, um, like, it's entertaining enough. I'm not saying, like, don't watch it. But it's not really Holmes. And that's, I don't know. I just don't, I just don't buy the whole Moriarty myth. I just don't, I don't care. I just fundamentally don't care. Yeah. I, mean, I don't I, buy it, you know. I really like Eric Porter as Moriarty. He does a yeah. great job. Yeah, yeah, no. Although I, I have to say, I think my all-time favorite Moriarty is um, Jared Harris in the second of the uh, 
uh, Guy Ritchie, Robert oh. Downey Jr. films. Because um, I think he's, I think he's just great, and I love that they play. Because as you say, the whole idea of Moriarty is kind of like there's this guy who's the the absolute crime lord of of England, who's also a mathematics professor. Like, mm. is he is he sort of doing his crime stuff in between marking papers? I mean, what what <laughs> you know? But the 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 Guy Ritchie movie just goes straight into it. You know, they actually have Holmes pay him a visit at the university and there he is in his gowns, you know, yeah, just put your foot to the metal and do it. But yeah, just <laughs> we're going to, we're going to cover those films as the last one of this series <laughs> for yeah. the audience, by the way. So yeah, no. Yeah. But yeah. It, they, those, that, that gets away with it because that film is, it's got this, it's got this slight tongue in cheek, slight, <laughs> you know, knowing. No, yeah, it's the parody. It's parody. Self awareness. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I say slight because I don't want to make it, I don't want to say that that film, we don't want to really get into those films yet, but I think it's, it would be too much to call them a parody because I think they, they don't mock the source material, but they do it with a very, with a lot of self awareness. I actually, really like both of them um mm. and yeah it works in that you know but just playing again the, the problem is in the source material eric porter's fine but playing it straight and playing it faithful just has this weird sort of it, it doesn't quite work you know in the stories moriarty is never mentioned until this story it's it's so obviously something that conan doyle has just invented and you know at the start of the story holmes just tells watson oh by the way i've had this arch enemy for ages i've never mentioned him before you know and the <laughs> the, the the tv series actually has to invent this previous case where Holmes and, and Moriarty have been up against each other. And they put him as they make him the guy behind the red headed uh, league yeah, in the previous league, episode yeah. as well to, to try to build it up a bit because it's such a gap in the stories. And I mean, the idea of putting Holmes against someone who is of his caliber intellectually is not a bad idea, but the idea of like making him like, like super crime Lord or whatever, it just yeah. kind of feels well, the whole point would be if there is somebody as smart as Sherlock Holmes, but a criminal, he would be secretive. He would be quiet. He would be somewhat like the whole point would be, you would only piece him together from like clues you found from. Well, from other he, in, in the text, he, he is in the text. Sherlock Holmes is basically the only guy who knows this guy exists. Yeah. All right. But, Holmes Holmes tells the police. This is another one of these weird gaps in the stories. Like the 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 final problem has the police orchestrating the final raid on Moriarty and all his gang and and rounding them all up and stuff. And it all it all happens off camera, so to speak, mm -hmm. while Holmes and Watson are dicking around on trains to Switzerland. <laughs> and Watson never meets Moriarty. He never sees him. He never speaks to him. He sees him once. That he sees a guy <laughs> sees looking out of a train window. Dog, yeah, put the seat at the window. Yeah, that's it. Which is which does you know that does that does provide the basis for this idea that there never was any such person, and that does make a kind of sense because you know the the, the sort of the version of Holmes who's evil. Well, that's that seems to make more sense to me, which is that it's just Holmes that side of Holmes's personality. You know, mm -hmm. and you can you can go further than the stage play went, and you can read you can go for the strong version, which is that yeah, there was this crime lord, Professor Moriarty, doing all the crimes, and it was actually Holmes doing it. You know, yeah. just for the pleasure of seeing if he could be a brilliant crime lord as well. <laughs> There's an angle in which the brilliant super criminal like Moriarty figure also like plays into like so many serial killer movies, like it plays into like Seven, yeah. and you know that like uh, the intricate copycat, like the Zodiac is essentially the real zodiac was essentially trying to be moriarty 
yeah. but in real life. And I don't know, like I, it's, I don't want to blame Doyle for, you know, kind of not understanding, you know, sort of, sort of the real dynamics of that necessarily, because it's obviously just him kind of writing stuff for a buck. And I'm never going to blame anybody for writing stuff for a buck. But at the same time, it is like, I would love to see sort of an adaptation, like sort of an original story based on this in which Moriarty is kind of more of that, just sort of, you know, somebody who thinks he's a mastermind who is playing with the cops, but ultimately is, you know, it, it's, it's not like sort of the, the master criminal. It's just some, again, some guy doing terrible things and just sort of like evading capture for you know various reasons you know for yeah. for institutional reasons so my thoughts on this <laughs> i i like i like both stories but they are bullshit when you when you get into like the canon of holmes i mean the this is this is arthur conan doyle writing uh holmes as a pulp hero more than anything else like th- this is very pulpy stuff it doesn't rely on a central mystery anymore it's more the um which is i think the the real draw of the original stories is just Holmes' brain put against a problem, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, oh, this is the final problem, but it's not really the final problem. It's Holmes having a conflict with his equal, and 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 it it's turns Holmes into, engaging in fisticuffs. That's yeah, the final no, problem. Holmes is an yeah. action hero, and he's uh, and this this plays out like a uh, like proto uh, espionage spy fiction more than it does uh, detective mm-hmm. fiction. Yeah. Uh, because you get the cat in most games, you get uh, jet setting international locations and all that stuff. You get a little bit of sex in, in this adaptation with the uh, rear female nudity at the, uh, uh, you know, because <laughs> we, we got to let everyone know. We got to let everyone know we're in France where all the perverts are. That's right. So, That's right. You know, it's um, the 80s. We can show ass on television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, as you say, it's, it's a signifier. You know, you've got waxed mustaches, tricolors, and women butts <laughs> yeah and then like he and you got these pretentious stereotypical french men it's like and this is where the mona lisa was with napoleon did this and that and then Holmes is like well you just fucking get to the point you yeah you prick <laughs> i think in the final problem the uh the final fight is silly as shit there's oh my it, wife was making fun of it i was watching it with her earlier and she's like <laughs> and so like the ultimate battle is they just sort of like old men screaming at each other and grappling each other. and hugging each other, yeah. But, yeah, but it's like, yeah, no, this is the greatest fight scene in detective fiction. But this is this is more this is more a uh, just showing us how unimaginative Watson is in writing a story, because <laughs> because essentially because this this final fight, by the time you get to the uh, second part of this, you realize this is just what Watson imagined the fight was. It, it's not what actually happened. So this is basically just Watson not being able to write a fucking fight scene to save his life, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what we see on screen has to be just Watson's imagination, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, and it, yeah. Even the uh, you know, the bungee cord wires and the two dummies that hit the rock. <laughs> like he imagined all that shit. So That's right, yeah. But yeah, I mean, if Watson is making this up, if for some reason Holmes needs to, you know, fuck off for a year to get off the get off the junk or whatever, and when he says, Watson, write a story where I die, because I just want to be left the fuck alone. Uh, you know, and Watson comes up with this. Yeah, what Watson you should have well, you should have taken this to a professional writer and said, Can you run your eye over this? Because I mean, apart from anything else, just leaving Holmes on his own because somebody comes to you with a message saying there's an English woman that needs a doctor. Yeah, have you paid any attention to what's been happening around you in the last? You know, yeah. there's, there's a woman. There's a woman. 
There's a woman who needs a doctor, and she needs a doctor who speaks English, if you know what I mean. Specifically, she needs an English doctor who served in Afghanistan and was wounded. That sounds right. like a job for me. She yeah. might need a doctor who works for a famous detective. There might be a crime involved that we need your help with. Like I don't, I don't know. Like yeah. she oh. said, it needs to rhyme with Sean Watson. Can we? Can we? Uh... And Watson's own account of his response to that is, "Yeah, that seems legit." Holmes, you stay here on your own uh, on the edge of this cliff, yeah. and I'll go and see to this lady. Which feeds into the like without a clue interpretation of you know this was all just Watson making himself look really dumb because he's the real like uh, you know genius yeah. yeah he's real genius yeah. yeah actually I kind of enjoy the empty house a bit more um, just the way it's presented like I like the opening moments with Watson walking down the, the street he used to live on it's it's really drab and sad. And he just kind of looks really drab and sad without uh, Holmes in his life. You know, he's sort of remembering the past. Um, I like that Watson kind of uh, when he when he's inspecting the the uh, Adair murder, he, he's trying to like slightly apply what he learned working with Holmes uh, as, mm-hmm. as he's going along. And I like that Lestrade is obviously has respect for that. Like he's like looking at Watson, like you're the authority now, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Holmes is dead. You're the guy now. So what do you think? You're the Although, guy that hung out with the genius and therefore you're still smarter than me. Just not as <laughs> smart as the and other I, guy. And I love that he goes and he does his uh, uh, account in court. And the judge could give a fuck because the judge is one of these pricks who only he sucks up to rich people. He yeah. doesn't give a shit what Watson has to say. But when some rich dumbass shows up, oh no, Adair was this and that. Thank you so much for your time, sir. And, and yeah. Great help to the court. And it's like fuck you. You know, <laughs> that's great stuff. I love that. Yeah, and yeah. it's 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 much better than the. Uh... The, you, know, you, you call it a locked room mystery they're always crap because the solution to a locked room mystery is always the room wasn't really locked which is yeah. just boring and the business with the bust I mean it, again it's authentic to the story but that wouldn't fool anybody for god's sake it's Sherlock, Holmes, Sherlock Holmes bust. stands in front of a window for four right. hours at a time yeah, without occasionally, moving this clearly this is well, clearly yeah, yeah. occasionally yeah. moving side to side, stiff as a board. You know, no, the real, the real thing, the real thing would be if the guy realized that it was a fake, but Holmes knew he would realize it was a fake, and then mm. set up some plot for him to find him based on that. You know, <laughs> yeah. what's what's really interesting is that you you asked me in one of these episodes, did um, the Basil Rathbone movies ever adapt this stuff? And I said no. The closest is probably the stuff in the Spider Woman. Um, they do actually kind of adapt this in another one, which is called The Woman in Green. And yeah. that's got Professor Moriarty in it, and he's played by Henry Daniel, brilliant, sinister, Hollywood bad guy, Henry Daniel. And, I mean, you, you Daniel, you're talking about sort of serial killers. That kind of casts Professor Moriarty as a serial killer. He's engineering this series of murders where for some fucking reason, what they're doing is they're murdering young women and then they're hypnotizing rich and powerful men so that they lose their memory. And then they're taking, they're cutting off the women's fingers or one of the fingers and they're putting it in the guy's pocket. So he becomes convinced that he did the murder. And then Professor Moriarty comes along and said, ah, I, I saw you murder that woman. Uh, you have her finger in your pocket, don't you? Now you're in my power. That's, that's, that's <laughs> Professor Moriarty's big plan in this film. And it's, it actually contains 
a bit that's very directly based on The Empty House, where Moriarty sends a guy to assassinate Sherlock Holmes. And it's, it's, it actually makes more sense in the Rathbone one, because what they do is they send a guy they've hypnotized to kill Sherlock Holmes. Then he tries the whole thing with shooting Holmes through the window, and Holmes does the, the same thing with the feint with the, the silhouette that, the, that's a bust and so on. But it makes more sense if the guy's hypnotized, doesn't yeah. it? And what's brilliant about that is that they, they do the thing where they say, well, you can't hypnotize people to do anything that they that's out of their character. What Moriarty does is the guy he hypnotizes and sends to assassinate Holmes is an army sniper. So Holmes says that's the devilish thing about it, Watson. It's not out of his character. It's his job. It's actually better. Well, now I think we need to do that one next. But uh, yeah, maybe yeah. Um, I do like uh, Moran's uh, sniper rifle here. Like this is almost steampunk, right? Like oh the, yeah, no, it's very, it's very, you know, kind of looking back to you know, like he's got like a grinding gear. He's got like a little, uh, you know, yeah. No, it's 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 pretty amazing. Yeah, and um, uh, also. Something I I just got a real kick out of. Not only Watson sitting in with a fez on and looking fucking silly, but um, I, I love how I love how Holmes explains everything to Watson, and it's basically just saying to him, "Yeah, I just like sadly watched you fuck up the investigation of my death. Like I just I just, I just watched you across the river, just looking like an asshole." <laughs> yeah and I, I love how quickly watson forgives him you know if somebody did that yeah. to me i'd just say i'm glad you're not dead uh fuck off <laughs> yeah yeah but, look, like there's there's, years, fuck off. there's a real like i was not quite expecting it to go quite you know there's a homoerotic element to like mm-hmm. that because there's no other way to play watson not telling holmes to fuck off at that point <laughs> you know there's no way other than Actually, I love you, and I would like to have you inside me all the time, even if you do this. You know? Like, this is a deeply problematic codependent relationship between these characters. By definition, if we're going to continue working together, you know. Yeah, but you Absolutely. know, you know what solves all the problems, though? It's Miss Hudson shows up and just like, "Hey, Sherlock's back, yo! Let's have all the booze. Let's just let's just drink some, yeah. some, some booze." Yeah. I do. I do love the scene where Sherlock shows up back at Baker Street, and Mrs. Watson has hysterics. I think that's that mm-hmm. Mrs. Hudson. Oh yeah, has and hysterics. then and then he like brings her into his arms, and she like settles into his bosom, and it's a very you know, yeah. it's very sweet in that oh patriarchy kind of way. But, uh, <laughs> oh, well, I mean, that poor woman has to like lean down and move that stupid silhouette hours on end every every like every half hour, Miss Miss Hudson. Um, Move it a little to the left to make it look like it's an actually a person, you know, you know, to, to yeah, fool Moran, yeah. who's apparently a moron, who's never like, <laughs> target before, you know. Like I would, I would like to see a version of this in which Miss Hudson is actually is actually the person behind Watson, who was actually the person behind Holmes. Yeah, that would be that would be a neat adaptation. Yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. But yeah, do we have any final thoughts on this before we move on? Or you mentioned Lestrade. I just want to say I love Colin Jeevans as Lestrade. the 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 treatment of Lestrade is one of the beauties of the TV show because the first episode he's in, which is actually one of my all time favorites, the Norwood Builder. Lestrade is a total absolute dick in that story. <laughs> uh, he is loathsome in that story. And over the course of several episodes that he's in, 
you you see Lestrade mellow towards Holmes and you see Holmes mellow towards Lestrade and you get to the point where in the the episode the six napoleons they have this very they have this lovely little moment where Lestrade says you know we're not we're not jealous of you we're proud of you at the at the station and if you came down we'd all shake your hand and Jeremy Brett does this wonderful thing that he's that he's so good at which is this constrained emotion thing and you can just you know Holmes is like a second away from bawling you know, but he just sort of nope, and he says, "Well, yes, that's that's fine, thank you, bye." You know, it's 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 great. Yeah, like he he does a little bit of that in like uh, the, the confrontation with uh, Moriarty too, in in his uh, study or whatever, where he he can barely you know like contain the sort of elation he's feeling. Like finally, I'm, I'm mm. finally meeting this motherfucker face to face, and and here it is. And he's he's a, you can tell he's a little scared. He's excited, and you know he has to actually gather himself up a little bit to give that final retort to Moriarty as he's leaving the office or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And he does this great thing. It's a bit on the nose, but he does this great thing where he sort of pulls his robe around himself as if he can feel the chill, you know, of doom coming yeah. as if Moriarty's very presence is, uh, you can feel the, the, the chill of the tomb coming in through the door with him. Yeah. So what are we doing next time? Anyone, anyone got any ideas? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the Norwood builder might be one we might want to. Well, if you, if you want to do more Jeremy Brett's, I mean, there are certainly better, better examples than this one, these ones. I, I agree with you. Holmes is better as the, the one-off story. Uh, so I think if you want to do another one, we should do, we should do one like that. Yeah. Norwood builder, certainly one of my favorites. The devil's foot is one of my favorites. The Musgrave ritual is a great one. So yeah, and any, anything you like, really. How about we um, actually? How about we do like three Jeremy Bretts next time? I'm I'm up for that if you want to. Uh, yeah, yeah, as long as the three are like fifty minutes a piece, as opposed to one of the two hour ones, you know. But. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 that'd work. Yeah, so let's just do those three that we mentioned. Okay, terrific. Awesome. Yeah, bunch of Jeremy Brett. Weren't we supposed to do movies instead of TV shows? But uh, you know, like whatever. uh yeah okay uh jack where can people find you on the interwebs uh if you go to my twitter you'll find links to everything i do i'm at underscore jack underscore graham underscore you'll find links to my blog at shibu and graffiti and my various podcasts that i've done over the years including the one that i'm doing at the moment with uh, my very good friend daniel harper i don't know if you've ever heard of him called i don't speak german which is about nazi fucking scum yeah, Daniel, what do you know about Nazi scum, and how do you talk about it on the internet? I know basically nothing. Uh, Jack writes all of my material, and I just read it into a microphone. You're just figurehead. I'm just the figurehead. Yeah. I'm 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 the I'm the Holmes to his Watson. <laughs> and it, it, it's actually my housekeeper that writes it all for me. Yeah, so. yeah, no, no, yeah, no, no. It's a, it's pretty. I'm just an actor. I'm a really good actor. That's what that's what you don't know about me. It's it's fine. No, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. I do uh, also the podcast. I don't speak German. It's about terrible people and the terrible people they say. The terrible, eh, it's about <laughs> terrible people and the terrible things that they say and do and believe and the bullshit that they want us to believe and um, how much they should just stop talking into microphones. If they want me to stop listening to them, that would be really good for them to stop yeah. talking into microphones. That's something I just recommend to them if they listen to this episode. They should just stop talking to microphones and then you're not my problem anymore. Yeah. Shut up. You know, at least stop talking to microphones. Ideally, stop talking under any circumstances ever. Yeah. Right. yeah. Keep your shit to yourself. I, lo- I, love, I love there's one who uh, we talked about on a recent episode who, uh, you know, I said the way to get to keep your woman in your life 
is to uh, eat her out in the shape of a swastika. And then on Twitter, <laughs> he told me, no, I never said that. And then I posted um, audio of him saying that. And then um, he made fun of me for listening to his podcast. So, uh, you know, that's all, that's just, you know. <laughs> you cook. <laughs> oh, look at you knowing the things that I said. Yeah, yeah. that's a real yeah. mark on you being terrible. Like, yeah, what a loser listening to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But if you uh, if you'd like to properly find out how to eat out a woman and come to tmbdos.podbean.com, actually you probably won't find that <laughs> no, on no, there. That's that's not something we've ever really done. But I mean, I'd be okay with doing an episode on that if yeah. that's something you'd, you know. I think we might need to get some guest hosts. Uh, yeah, you know, we might need some expert uh, opinions on that we, one. We might need to get some some women involved in mm-hmm. that conversation. Ultimately, Boy, but, yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but uh, tmbdos.hobby.com, you can find our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook links, join the Facebook group, all that good shit, and find out what's coming up next on the podcast. And we will be back next time with yet more Sherlock Holmes adaptations. And until then, thank you uh, guys for joining me. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye.
You have been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>